Welcome back, Stu. And welcome back, everybody, to Creep Time, the podcast for a Friday episode. I I have a story for us. I've known about this story, and I've wanted to cover it for a very, very long time. And I will say before we get into it, it is graphic, it is chilling, and there is something about it that is so deeply off, and it is going to be theories-ridden. This is a case for you. This is good for you. Oh, I'm I'm so ready. I was telling you before we got on that my energy, it's so gloomy outside, like, and I just woke up from a nap, and now I'm, like, rearing and ready to go. Oh, that, that troubled me none, because I said, Mama, I'm about to rip the rug <laughs> out from under you. Your ass, gone. Grass. <laughs> now, this is, it's interesting because this isn't a story of county corruption, which we're kind of, like, we're on a theme at this point since the Jennifer Fairgate episode. We're, like, county county has taken a seat they haven't done much um and it's actually not even really a proper unsolved disappearance it's a mysterious death but it feels a little bit different from what we normally talk about on here this is the very strange case of what happened to blair adams and i i know i've mentioned that name to you before but there's something about the name blair i don't know if it's like the association with linda blair that just it like jogs something in my memory. It makes me think of The Exorcist. Do you have that too? Is that a thing? Oh, that's so funny. For me, Blair, maybe it's Gossip Girl, but it just makes me think of like some very like popular girl in school. Well, it's this is a man. Like, I should clarify. This is a uh, man. It's Blair. Ad- yeah, I when I first saw the case, I was like, oh, mysterious case about a woman. This is a man. Blair Adams. <laughs> I love that you're like, and it makes me think of Linda Blair. It does. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, Linda Blair was the original Reagan in The Exorcist. Um, how did I not get a brand deal for The Exorcist? Wait a second. That's out. By the way, can yeah. we just talk about that commercial has been all over my my cable, my Hulu. Mm. I cannot escape that trailer for that movie. And it looks it makes me like sick to my stomach. The woman who's like in it, the, the old woman, she's nine. So dark. It is so dark. Yes. Yeah. I I kind of I don't know. The the original Exorcist is one of the scariest to me. So I love that they're kind of resurrecting the story. But yeah, you can't yeah. escape that right now. Thrillers are so like, t- good two to little make. Girls. I know. Spooky. Your mother's here, Clarence. Would you like to leave a message? Oh my god. <laughs> We'll have to check and see if that sounded anything like it was a woman, I think, who who voiced um like Reagan when she's possessed in the movie in the original in the 70s. I'm pretty sure it was a, like a very famous voice actress. Oh my god. My little my little clue into the exorcist. Remember when we saw the stairs in DC? I do. I was just thinking about that because of this, but we're gonna do a whole case or a whole story episode at one point where we talk about the behind the scenes of the exorcist because that movie set is for sure cursed something is so dark on that movie set you ever see it you saw Did it right you say, i feel like i remember i i've only seen bits and pieces of the og but i remember when we did that haunted walking tour yeah that you were telling me wasn't it like someone died 
Yes. Or like. Yes. Yeah. So, something happened on the set. He, I think, I think he fell through a window. It was either like the director or like somebody like on set, like someone fell through a window. There were also like a lot of injuries on set. Um, they had a body double for Reagan because she couldn't do some of the scenes. I'm trying to think what else is interesting about that. One of the most graphic scenes of The Exorcist is, I think it's a deleted scene. It never made the the cut because I think it was deemed too disturbing. But it's it's like a scene where the mother like closes the downstairs door to the living room and Reagan is going through the throes of possession. She turns around and there's a backwards walk down the stairs. And oh something about like the practical effect of how they did that in the 70s. Oh my God, it's so scary. It's so scary. And like, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think when she gets to the bottom, they get a really good shot of her opening her mouth. And I think blood pours out. Just casual movie. If, in the 70s, if you weren't you know, used to seeing that, that would have messed you up. You would have walked out sideways. <laughs> well, I've told you that my mom lived next door to Linda Blair in the 70s. Did you? What? Maybe very briefly, I've mentioned that my mom grew up next to Linda Blair. Like, next door neighbors. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, yes. really? I'm like, yes. I need to get the full tea from was her. Was she friends with I her? Did she know her, or just like know he, of friends her? Friends with her, yeah. Like they were, they were like neighborhood friends. Yeah. What? Like would go over to each other's house and like play. Did she ever ask her about the <laughs> filming of the movie? We're gonna have to have Jules on the podcast. <laughs> okay, we do need to have her on the podcast because, from what I can remember, I think my mom said this was when my mom lived in New Jersey. I think and okay, that would make sense. Grew up, grew up next door to Linda and. They were friends, I believe, before she was in The Exorcist. And then she got The Exorcist. And like, friends my no mom more. was like, I could never look at her the same. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So seriously, though, I'm sure that like probably shifted a lot of her childhood where people just oh, thought of her differently. Like, that was a phenomenon, The Exorcist in the 70s. Yeah. People were, I remember my parents telling me about it, like, when I first watched it, like, because what they remembered was like, people were fainting, throwing up in the theaters. Mm-hmm. I never thought I would experience, I promise we'll get into the story in a second, but I never thought I would experience like that kind of hysteria in like any kind of theatrical space until I saw 1989, the Robert Icke version. Uh, oh, I, I saw, remember you telling me this. I saw this in London and it was the craziest theater um, adaptation I had ever seen. Like it was intense overstimulation and extra- I'd never seen like graphic stuff like that on stage in theater like I was used to musicals so that yeah. one that one really threw me on my ass but then they toured it so we saw it in um we saw it at Harvard when it came on tour went on the road same cast and I think a lot of people because 1989 is a book that you study in middle school a lot of people brought their children to it thinking it would be like it's an educational commentary they had no idea what they were about to see and towards the end, there is a pretty graphic and lengthy torture scene on stage. I will never forget the hysteria in theater, in live theater. People getting up, running to the exits during a show. And as we left after the show ended, people outside throwing up on the campus. That was insane that that could evoke That's that. That's crazy. <laughs> to see something so graphic in a play that you have to run out because you're going to vomit, that's nuts. I, the, so wait till you see creep time that... on the road because 
It's the second we get up there, it's puke city, mama. we're going to make y'all barf. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that people, like, I remember my brother telling me that people had similar experiences when they saw Hostel. I don't think I've ever seen Hostel. I haven't either, but the like the OG Hostel. I remember it, maybe he wasn't mm-hmm. at this theater, but I remember when the OG Hostel came out that like it was being reported that people were throwing up because of the sheer terror and horror and gore. I do remember that now. I think I remember reading stories about it, but I don't think I ever saw. I must have been too young. I don't remember when it came out, but I don't think I could see a rated R movie. I, what was your first rated R movie? You that can't you catch saw? me dead. <laughs> you couldn't catch you dead now. Um, <laughs> What was the first scary movie I saw? Um, well, not scary, just rated R. Just rated, rated R. R. Oh my god! I actually think I saw. <laughs> Wait, no, that couldn't have been it. I feel like there was a Batman movie in the nineties that was like rated R that I might was have there? seen with my dad, and my brother. Maybe like in the I don't theater, know if it was rated R. But in the theater, I was way too young to see it. I remember that being my first movie where it was like I shouldn't be here. Oh, what was the first movie that you ever saw? Do you remember it in the theater? Casablanca. (laughs) (laughs) Back at its original release. (laughs) Its original black and white. Oh, five cents. Um, I honestly, I couldn't remember. Um, I truly don't remember. I think. Do you remember your first movie? I think it was Harry Potter. (gasps) That might have been mine. It was either Harry Potter or it was The Emperor's New Groove. Oh. <laughs> and I remember Crank. what I got for a second. Crank! <laughs> I got Crank. Twizzlers as my snack. <laughs> Pull the lever. Oh my God, that's such a good movie. I can't. I, I know. We should go as them forever. for a costume for something. Oh my God. Crank and What's her name? Yzma? Yzma. Yzma. Voiced by Eartha Kitt. <gasps> Eartha Kitt. <laughs> and with that... Oh, do I pivot us back <laughs> to Blair Adams? Okay, God. so let's go from Eartha Kitt, Linda Blair, Blair Adams. Perfect. And we're and, back. And we're back. I'm just going to snort my ADHD medication real quick. All right. <laughs> Don't do that. Creep time doesn't endorse that. So Mm-mm. let me give you just a little bit of a top line because I feel like I kind of skimmed over what happened here and I just told you it was a mysterious death. But this is actually something that I think you're going to find very interesting because There are a few counterpoints here that don't really make sense. And the big question is, was somebody after Blair or was this in his imagination? That is the big takeaway of the case. So we have this man, Blair Adams, young guy, early 30s, and he started to exhibit some unusual behavior around his family and friends in the 90s. This case takes place in 1996. Another 90s case for you. Now, Along with the unexplained behavior came unexplained purchase habits, where he eventually makes his way out of Canada into the U.S. for no known reason, told no one, apparently didn't know anyone there, but he was going somewhere. It is never clear where he's going or why he's going, but eventually he is reported missing after last being seen possibly near a restaurant the night before he died. People claimed they saw him meeting with an unknown man and an unknown woman. The following morning, his body is found dead in a very strange way. It appeared that he might have been sexually assaulted as he's found in public, nude from the waist down, and killed as the result of a homicide. Curveball. 
left field. I did not. I was not looking at your face. Your face is mortified right now. Continue. (laughs) Well, it's a very strange case and I am excited to cover it only because it's not commonly talked about. I don't I mean, have you ever heard the name Blair Adams outside of me telling you about it? No, definitely not. It's it's pretty rare that people touch on this case, but which is odd because it's so damn mysterious. And of course, you know, before I'm going to get into the story. I just want to stop and thank everybody for stopping by to listen and hang out with us for a Friday episode on Creep Time with Silas and Stu. Some quick admin before we get into the story. Please, you guys, do make sure that you hold off for a second. Really do this. Take a breath and just follow and subscribe to the podcast. Or you could turn on the bell notification so you don't miss a beat. And if you feel so inclined, you can always leave us a positive review because we love those. And you could even talk about us online or talk to us online because Reddit is popping the hell off they are up on the reddit thread creep time on reddit is now a thing you've released the floodgates <laughs> that i have the the theories coming through <laughs> i can't even i can't wait to hear what they're going to say about this case but if you guys want to stick oh, around after God. the episode we have the creep time lounge it's like a chat in there <laughs> the creep time so lounge. fun i love how unhinged reddit is so Y'all get after it. It's kind of amazing. It's like a weird little like social democracy because I mean, if you think about how karma works, this is boring. I won't get into it. But like, it's cool because like you can't just like write spam. You know what I mean? Like people can't spam comments of like uselessness because it gets downvoted and then like you could just get etched out of posting. So in that way, because like it's based on the democracy of votes, it's kind of like high quality content. Like everyone contributes something great. So Thank you guys for participating. And if you want to join us, it is Creep Time the Podcast on Reddit. And with that, Stu, are you ready to get into the story? Oh, I'm so ready. Okay. So we've got our top line. I'm going to give you some background, just a little bit about who Blair was and what might have colored what was going on in his head at the time. So Blair Adams was a 31-year-old man who was living in Canada, and he worked in British Columbia as a foreman for a construction company. And he was described by everybody that knew him, that I was reading about, most of his friends, as kind of a bright, positive, and joyous person to be around. It really, I would say the insidious turn of this story doesn't really happen until maybe like three to four weeks prior to his disappearance and death, when those who knew him, including his mother, Sandra, they sensed that something was kind of off with him. They described a noticeable difference in his personality where he suddenly seemed to have these unexplainable mood swings or he became very irritable very quickly. According to his mother, Sandra, it was clear and apparent to her that something was going on with her son, but he remained really secretive about what was bothering him and what exactly was going on. And his mother was aware that he was having this extreme difficulty sleeping and that he seemed to be paranoid that somebody was after him. So even though she was consistently saying, like, what's going on? Like, who's who's coming for you? He would keep saying, I shouldn't tell you. I can't tell you about it. So he's confirming that, like, he thinks someone is after him and he's very firm on the secret, whatever that secret was. But it wasn't until July of that year, 1996, where his behavior shifted from irritable to erratic and unexplainable. It's believed on this date, the 5th of July, for no known reason, Blair chose to withdraw the entirety of his savings 
which was six grand at the time, $6,000, in addition to numerous pieces of jewelry within his possession, all of his valuables, everything to his name. There is no clear indication as to why he did this. He never left a note. There's no paper trail they ever found. There's no correspondence in the phone records. They never even found a phone call that went from Canada to the U.S. from his phone. So it's odd that he would withdraw all of this. And then just two days later, he tries to escape from Canada and flee at the U.S. border. So let's pause there and just talk a little bit about that mindset. He's clearly paranoid. I guess the question is, so far, if we don't have a paper trail, but he's saying someone's after him, is this in his head or is there somebody who's really there? I mean, my first thought was it might be in his head only because I feel like manic behavior a lot of times is like either like spending, 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 or like there's usually Mm -hmm. weird money habits associated with like some manic behavior. That's a good point. Um, Yeah. So I, that was my first thought was like, okay, maybe he's like going through an episode. Um, yeah. I should say he didn't have any history of mental illness with his family and he had an issue with alcoholism in the past, but he had been two years sober up until this point. Okay. Um, I just want to, I'll get into that a little bit later, but I just wanted to toss that out early because that was where my thought was going. I was like, he's either paranoid because he's having like schizophrenic delusions or he could be on drugs and maybe that's causing the paranoia mm-hmm. or there's the third option. Somebody's really after him because inevitably he is killed by someone. Mm-hmm. So I'll keep going. So in those two days, following his departure from Canada, he would attempt to enter the U.S. at the border, and he had to declare what was on his person. And he's actually denied entry because his presence, as you can imagine, is a little suspicious for Border Patrol because they're trying to make sense of why is a single young male um, attempting to cross the border alone, and he appears to have all this cash on him, $6,000, in addition to a little fanny pack of jewelry, like valuables. So they're like, he seems like a drug trafficker, like he's trafficking. So they deny him entry at the border. Um, But within just a day, investigators would later determine that Blair went back to Canada, quit his job, gave them no reason, and was able to collect his final check, which he put towards a very interesting purchase. He put his money towards a $1,600 round-trip ticket that would take him to Germany. Now, It was determined that the intention of this trip and the location of where he was going was most likely to see his girlfriend back in Germany. And although their relationship wasn't clear, she is very real. I just wanted to preface with that. He had worked overseas in Germany with his father's construction company where he met her. They developed a relationship. And although there's no clarity on just like how firm that relationship was at this point, She had no reason to believe that Blair would be acting unhinged, but what was strange to her was that she had no knowledge that he had an intention to come see her, because that was the city where she lived in Germany. But nonetheless, something even stranger happens. He abandons the ticket to Germany, that $1,600 ticket, and it's never clear why he never contacted her if he was planning to go, but more importantly, why he just decided not to the following morning. So he abandons that ticket, and we kind of get this image in our minds that Blair might be a bit of like a complicated person, like maybe something 
he's he's more complex than we thought and he might be tied up mm-hmm. in something so then they start digging to try to figure out from the girlfriend and some people who knew him back in germany is there anything about his personality like outside of people just saying like he's a fun guy to be around that you can tell us and what's interesting is there are some former colleagues who claim that blair is actually not as kind as he seems he's um kind of confrontational he's a little combative and he would often get into fights so there's a bit of a contradiction and a dichotomy to the character that we know of as Blair. On one hand, he's really positive. On the other hand, he's erratic and unpredictable. But it's very clear at this point that above all, he is just paranoid because he's trying to get out of Canada. So within that 24-hour period, he abandons the ticket. And before he actually leaves Canada, he stops over at a friend's house in Canada and confides in this friend says there is someone who is trying to kill him she's completely bewildered like gobsmacked she has no idea where that's coming from she doesn't know how to help him or like what to say and actually he's acting so erratic in front of her she doesn't even know if it's real but what he does keep saying is that the killer is coming from germany which is strange because he had just bought that ticket to germany you know so yeah i was trying to understand like the irrational thought there is it that he's trying to like cross paths so they miss each other like they're coming to Canada to get him so he's going to leave and go to Germany to avoid them is that the thinking well i think as the friend your first question would be like how do you know this person like where are they now according to how who do you he know confided in he was just being very secretive and he was like i i have to tell somebody but i can't tell you much but they're after me kind of thing and she's like, she's actually in the camp where she's like, I think he's having some kind of a break. Like, I don't know that this, any yeah. of this is real. Um, And I think at this point, his mother knew this as well. But she was, she was beginning to wonder if maybe Blair is imagining this. So she's starting to suspect that he might have relapsed, Um, even though he's two years sober. Like, she's just kind of spiraling, trying to figure out what is going on with him. And all of this is happening in that weird 24-hour period, but it's all to you know for naught because he actually does end up leaving Canada. So following him confiding in this friend and following the mother, you know, from her description, she's saying, I, I can't get a hold of like what's going on with him. He makes a pass to go to the Canadian border again in a rental car. And this time he is successful. He gets past the border and he would drive all the way to Seattle. In Seattle, for whatever reason, he abandoned his rental car and then purchased a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. We don't know why he did that because it was actually cheaper to purchase a round-trip ticket. But for some reason, he drove to Seattle, purchased the one-way ticket, gets to D.C., gets another rental car, and he starts driving that rental car miles and miles away to get to Knoxville, Tennessee, There is no logical explanation for why he planned to go to these specific locations. Like, there's never any record found of, like, a specific route that he was taking. And according to his family and investigators, there is no evidence that he had ever been to these places or that he knew anybody in any of these locations, specifically Knoxville, Tennessee. So why was he going in that direction? Maybe it's just because we came off the Jennifer Fairgate story, but why do I feel like he's like almost making up in his head that he's like on some sort of mission? 
That's like, a very, that's very real. That oh my God. Wait, actually, yeah. can I send you some visuals? That reminds me. I did get some visuals for you. Yes. Okay, hold on. Yes. Oh my gosh. So um, this is a picture but you of know, like, Blair. Okay. I feel like sometimes like when people start to have a break, it's like they almost create like a myth like around their story. Like they, they start to believe their own myth about like what it is that their their purpose is sort of. I know that sounds very heady and probably doesn't make sense. No, I think it does like, though. Like they're having th- they're having delusions of grandeur. They're having delusions yeah, that like yes, there's yes. some there's some greater purpose or operation that's unfolding around them and that they yes. are like the chosen one to like carry out that purpose or mission. Yes. Really oh, gives you a deep dive okay. into like <laughs> the the narcissism of the <laughs> the human psyche. <laughs> Yeah, no. Well, it's funny. The first picture you sent me, he looks pretty like normal and healthy. And the second one, he looks almost looks like a mugshot. Like vacant. I know well, it's not, but. I, it could have just been a really bad picture of him. I was trying to gauge. I was like, does he look disconnected or is that just like a 90s shot? Like he didn't know someone was snapping a photo of him. But yeah, he, he looks not like somebody who I would peg to be maybe mixed up as like or trusted as a drug trafficker. If that makes sense. No. But nonetheless, we have all these weird destinations that he's going to. To drive to Seattle, take a one-way plane ticket to D.C., and then get another rental car heading up towards Knoxville. Seems like a really deliberate path, even though it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, I Such random... Especially, you know what I was thinking mm-hmm. when we were saying... Was he trying to get away from someone and maybe that's why he was going to Germany? Mm-hmm. But then why is he now coming to ping, you know, like ping ponging between Vancouver, Seattle, DC, and Knoxville? You know, it's like yeah. I'm starting to lose the idea that like someone is really after him. Well, you know, what's the most interesting about this is that we have no evidence that he knew anybody in any of these places. And yet we have an we have a witness statement from Knoxville, Tennessee, the night he arrived. That he was seen possibly with a man and a woman. Oh my. That's weird. Oh, that's juicy. It's what? really weird. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, this is mostly exposition I'm getting into. I'm going to jump into like where things really go awry. So he arrives in Knoxville, right? So we get a witness claim uh, from somebody who saw Blair at a Knoxville gas station the day he arrived. This is roughly 5.30 p.m. And this would be one of the first and only people who actually get to interact with Blair while he's on the move. So they can really speak to the nature of where his head was at. So Blair first interacts with the attendant at the gas station, and he seems kind of frantic. And he starts complaining. He's alone, I should say. But he starts complaining that his rental car won't start. Now, from this description, it's very odd because the attendant comes out and he sees that the key that Blair is trying to use it doesn't actually go to this car. It's like the car key from the rental car he abandoned back in Seattle. So he's trying to explain to him, he's like, that's not the right key for like this car. Do you have the correct key? Because I mean, Blair says he doesn't have the correct key, but clearly he must because he drove the car to the gas station, you know, so where could it be? So they start kind of looking around the car and the attendant is watching him and he notices a bulge in his pocket, which looks like an imprint of a car key. So he asks Blair, he's like, you know, would you mind like rechecking your pockets like really, really deep? Like it might be in your pocket. For whatever reason, Blair says no. He like refuses to do so. And the attendant's like, well, no, like I can see like an imprint, like just dig really deep. Your key's got to be in there. And Blair's like, 
No. Just really insistent. He doesn't want, I know, doesn't want to check his pockets. So then the attendant gets like the sense. He's like, okay, maybe I'm not like dealing with someone who's playing with a full deck here. And I don't really know how to help this guy. And at this point, if he wants like a replacement key for his rental, he can't get it because he's, it's like past five o'clock, like they're closed. So it's never clear. This is also what's really strange because we have that pr- like prior knowledge of the witness statement that Blair was seen with people in this city. It's actually thought that Blair had no intention of staying in Knoxville. Like he was just passing through to get gas when like this weird rental key situation happened. So it's bizarre. But even though we have no evidence that Blair knew anybody in Knoxville in the 1990s, there's no cell phone records or anything where he could coordinate um, with somebody that he was going to meet up with them, he decides he's going to stay. So this attendant basically offers to drive him to a nearby hotel where Blair can get a room for the night and he can kind of sort the rental situation in the morning. So this is around 7.30 p.m. where Blair arrives at the lobby of this hotel. And it would be the first instance, the actual, actually the only instance where Blair is seen on camera. So we know exactly what he was wearing and we get a visual description of what his behavior was like. And we have a witness. So actually, I'm going to send you a still from that video footage. Let's see. It's pretty small. It's pretty grainy, but you can kind of see him. He's hunched over the counter in the flannel. Maybe you can see that. Weird. Okay, so this is like him checking into the hotel? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So time timeline-wise, this is like right after 7.30. And the witness statement that we have comes from the woman who happened to be working at the front desk that night. And she described his behavior as extremely, extremely paranoid. She's like, he was constantly looking over his shoulder. Like, like he was anticipating that someone was about to come up behind him. Always. And on camera, he can be seen walking in and out of the front door, checking the parking lot five different times before he actually decides to pay for a room for the night, which he does in cash. Allegedly, he did not take his change. He took the hotel key card, put it in his pocket, left again through the front door by 737, and he would not return to the hotel that night. This witness statement, which just so happens to be caught on camera, as we know, is the only time throughout this story that he is ever verified to have been seen on camera. And then we don't actually know what happened to him after that because this moment is the last time he is seen alive. Witness statements would come later on from that night that suggested Blair might have been seen near a local restaurant, like I said, possibly with that unknown man and unknown woman. But these have never officially been verified. This is so strange, this case. I So weird. How are you feeling at this point? Do you feel like... Well, actually, let's talk about that key situation at the gas station, because that's still, like, in the back of my mind, like, why he would be like, I don't want to check my pockets. Like, why make up this, like, weird story? Because I think he's, like, like, he's in this whole believing his own. He's made up some story in his head that, like, people are out to get him. And so, like, being told what to do, like, check your pockets. Or, like, honestly, it's like that, like, being told what to do is already, like, sending him off. Mm -hmm. And then I think he knew, go with me, that, like, if he checked his pockets and pulled out the actual, like, keys, 
that he would have to like face himself a little bit and be like, okay, what's happening with me? Like, why am I starting to lose the plot? Like, yeah, like when you're you're looking like, like logic in the face and it's scary. Yeah. Yes. What's odd? I'm totally tracking with that. That makes complete sense to me that in his head, he's like on a mission, you know what I mean? And he's like, he's like falling off the grid a little bit mentally, but there is some tangible evidence here that he was not alone in this hunt against him. Like those two random people that he was with that night that just happened to be in Knoxville. Like, I, did he I need meet to them know there? more about where they were. <laughs> I didn't want to have to say this now. Um, so the restaurant that they're allegedly seen outside of is a Cracker Barrel. Oh God. It's a Cracker Barrel. No, baby, no. Oh, hey, listen. What? <laughs> Okay, I got it. He was on a mission to get to the gift shop. Okay. Oh. If you've never been to the gift shop, that is one mission that you gotta. I've never been to a Cracker Barrel, but it has quite the reputation for me. Oh my God. Do you know a little bit of levity here? There is a new trend on TikTok that is um, Cracker Barrel fashion versus anthropology. And like you having to guess which one is from Cracker Barrel or anthropology and Cracker Barrel has like the cuter stuff. No, that's so foul. That's so foul. I know. (laughs) It's probably like a fourth of the price too. That's amazing. Yeah. A fourth of it. Yeah. We should do a brand deal for Cracker Barrel. They should be a sponsor of this podcast. I would love that. I would love it. <laughs> but yeah, I figured that was like in the same vein as like the ugly tuna saluda, just as like ridiculous establishments where something nefarious went down. At least it wasn't a chain. Cracker Barrel's a damn chain. Well, they opened, don't forget, they opened up another ugly tuna saluna. So now. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but Cracker, two. Cracker Barrel two is a chain. Well, what's like rough about this is that. At first, everyone's like, well, maybe they were just like in the parking lot, like meeting. But later on, when there's an autopsy, there's evidence that they actually had dinner at the Cracker Barrel. So do with that what you will. Now, I don't want to know what they ordered. <laughs> I'll get into it in a bit. You'll hear. But this is where the case takes like the dark turn. So we have that final imprint of Blair leaving through the front door of the hotel lobby, 737 p.m. Very frantic, very paranoid. Last time he is ever seen on camera, we don't really know what happened to him after that unless we follow this witness statement that says sometime in the night, I think it was roughly around like 9 or 9.30 this person reported it, they saw who they thought was Blair later on once they see a picture of him. They're like, that looks like the guy I saw. He was talking to a man and a woman outside in this parking lot. So what is the aftermath of what happens next? Exactly 12 hours from the time that he was last seen on camera in that hotel, Blair's body was discovered the following day in a construction zone about a half a mile from the hotel. The body was found nude from the waist down with what police described as visual evidence of a possible sexual assault. His shoes had been removed, his socks had been turned inside out, and his shirt was ripped open exposing his chest and his stomach. Found scattered around his body, all over, was $4,000 in American, Canadian, and German currency. It is assumed that this is the entire amount of the remaining savings which Blair had to his names, his name, (laughs) and all of it was left. All of it. Nothing was taken. Additionally, there is a little black fanny pack that belonged to him, which is found next to the body, which contained the jewelry and the gold, again, 
100% his possession. All of it is there. And they estimate this may have been worth like $2,000. There were also sunglasses, I believe like a map inside that fanny pack, and the hotel key card. Police also found a car key. It was the car key to the rental car that he claimed he could not find, even though that attendant believed it was in his pocket on his person the entire time. I do have some pictures of um, the stuff that they found. Hold on. Oh, my God. Wait, I mean, so was he just like half naked and didn't look like he, anything yeah. had happened? Well, no, he had he had been beaten up pretty severely. Pretty okay. severe. Yeah, he had lacerations all over his body and his shirt was ripped open. He had bruising. He had a pretty bad gash in his head, which I'll get into in a second. But it seemed yeah. clear to them. It looked like this was possibly sexually motivated. Okay. So this is the inside of the fanny pack. And then this is the actual fanny pack as it was displayed at the construction zone. And I also have the car key too. Weird too. Just so weird that all of these things were just left by the body. But I'll keep going because the... Like I said, the body appeared to have multiple lacerations, one particularly that was very severe on his head, which might have been split from some kind of a metal bat or a crowbar. But what they also would learn from the medical examination is that the hit that killed him was an extremely violent and fatal blow using some kind of a metal pipe to his stomach, which was so impactful it ruptured his stomach and he died of septic shock. Investigators also, I know. I'd never heard of a death like that. Investigators also made note, um, as I mentioned before, that there were some clear signs that Blair had been sexually assaulted, although a medical examination eventually turned up no additional evidence of DNA to properly confirm this. It was initially suspected that Blair had maybe been tied up in some kind of elaborate drug scheme, but Maybe Or maybe he was using again, like something that had to do with drugs. But a toxicology report of the body found no signs of drugs or alcohol in his system, which would back the claim from the family and friends that they said Blair's been sober for two years. And like I said, he had no prior history of suffering from mental illness. Additionally, one of the investigators searched his hands, and this was corroborated by the medical examiner. It appeared that he had significant defensive wounds on his fingers as they were badly bloodied, suggesting that he tried to put up a fight against his attacker, and it went on for some time, which then led them to one of the most puzzling pieces of evidence in this case. Attached to his fingernail, assumed to have come from him gripping and pulling it out during a fight, was a very long strand of dyed black hair, which did not belong to Blair and it is likely it belonged to a woman. There was no root on this single strand of hair, so it could not be traced or used for any DNA evidence. It is just an anomaly in this very strange and bizarre sexual attack against this 31-year-old man. The lead investigator on the case, Jimmy Jones, described the discovery of Blair Adams' body as one of the strangest and most mysterious he had ever come across in his entire career. With virtually no explanation or evidence to suggest that Blair was actually running from someone, like an actual person, on paper or through phone records, 
we very clearly have a homicide and a homicide that took place in a city where Blair had apparently never been, nor did he know anyone that police could verify. But there is just no explanation for us to understand how Blair was being tracked and hunted, if and why he was sexually assaulted, and who could have been behind the murder and why. As it was clear, they did not want his money because every single bit of it was left with the body. They only wanted to assault and kill Blair Adams. Let's circle back, Mama, because that is a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. What in the world? Okay, so he was found at this, like, construction site. Yes. How far away was it from... Hotel? The Cracker Barrel. That's a good question, actually. Let's look this up. Like, was the idea that he went to the Cracker Barrel and then went to this random hotel... well, well, the, the hotel is where he checked in. That's where he got the room for the night. I mean, uh, construction site. Oh, I'm construction sorry. site. Yeah. So I guess so. Or maybe it could have been that he was like on his way back to the hotel. It was a half a mile from the hotel. So it seemed clear that maybe he was either on his way to the hotel or wanted to get back to that general area. But he never went mm-hmm. into a room. So it wasn't like he had belongings in there. He had nothing on his person, like no belongings outside of that fanny pack. It's so weird. I also just think it would be like, I know we're talking about the long black hair, Mm -hmm. not that it's impossible, but I think it would be uh, depending on also on what time of night or day they think that this attack took place. I think it would be really, really strange, like for a woman to just haul off and assault a man, a grown man in what, mm-hmm. what time of day was it? Well, they think this, they're not sure, but they think it might have happened around like 3, 3.30 in the morning. Okay. Well, I don't know. Well, that, that's can we tie that back? Time of night. It is nothing, nothing good happens. Nothing Genuinely, good. not a good thing can happen. I'm proof from what happened in Vegas. <laughs> nothing <laughs> happens good after 3.30. Also, I was going to say... <laughs> The idea of going to a Cracker Barrel and then walking across an interstate to get back to a hotel we sounds know it like well. us on tour. We know it we know very that well. We know too, too well. <laughs> Except Cracker Barrel would be too elevated for us. I think we did that for a Waffle yeah. House. We did it for a Waffle House <laughs> or an Applebee's margarita we did it for. Oh, my God. We used to we would walk across a six lane highway to get to a Raising Cane's. Oh, my God. It hurts my stomach. For you to say that, first of all, I would do that today for a raising case. Like, <laughs> <I know. laughs> blindfolded mama, just for the chance. But I want to talk about that hair for a second, because I want to tie that back to the possible connection to the man and the woman that he might have been seen with at Cracker Barrel. I don't know off the top of my head how far that was. I'm sure I could look it up. Like, let's see. Knoxville Cracker Barrel. So was there an eyewitness that saw him with a man and a woman? Allegedly. I mean, if they're to be trusted, we we really have to take their word for it because it's entirely possible, I should say, that that never even happened or they're confused. But I don't know. I think when it comes to like going out of your way to give a witness statement, especially to do it anonymously and you're like you're not gaining any kind of like clout off of it. I don't know that people false report things very often. You know, I think that I mean... For some reason, I can very much believe it because he was definitely killed by somebody. So we know he interacted with somebody there. Yeah. And we also have this strange, I mean, if we didn't know anything about the Cracker Barrel, 
we have that strange detail of what is most likely a woman's hair ripped out in his hand. This person said, I saw him with a woman and this man at this restaurant. So I'm like, okay, I'm seeing a story like fusing, you know? Yeah. It would be like nice if they ever uncovered like, you know, a receipt or something well, that from was the, the Cracker Barrel. Yeah, I was like, well, surely there must be camera footage or something, but there was no way yeah. for them to like, apparently there were like no, they didn't pursue it as something that they they thought they should look into. And it had been so much time had passed by the time this person came forward that there was no way they could track the receipts. They didn't have camera footage. It was 1996. They were just like, I mean, he may have eaten there, but the medical examination is really interesting because like I said, when they do search his stomach, they find residue of meat, shrimp, and salad, which did suggest that he ate dinner that night, most likely at a restaurant, probably something like a Cracker Barrel that would have Mm -hmm. that kind of coursing. It just didn't seem likely that he would have eaten that food like on foot, you know, or someplace like near the car. I was expecting rib tips and a moon pie, but <laughs> I'll take them. Meat, shrimp, and shrimp salad. And salad. Hmm. Okay. So, so I guess for me, where I'm having so much trouble is like, how do we go from that mm-hmm. to, which was probably at like, I don't know, seven or eight o'clock or something. And we're all of a sudden we're at, 3 30 a.m like what happened in the in-between yeah well it depends on what you think those two people if you believe those two people were with him what who you think they were to him because we have no way to verify like how blair knew where these people were gonna be you know what i mean unless he just met them that night which is a theory here i mean there's a theory on that well let me see hold on let me see what else i have in my notes because I am so stumped right now. I'm like, how did this man end up I know. It's, assaulted? It's very, it's very, very odd. Well, we have, um, let's see, there's a couple of additional witness statements. I already talked about one of them, which can kind of piece together what might have happened in that 12-hour window before Blair is discovered dead. So we have the anonymous um, witness that comes forward to talk about the Cracker Barrel sighting. But there's something more interesting here that came from an additional witness. It was a security officer who was standing out near the construction site in that area that night. He came forward the following day after the discovery and claimed that sometime around 3.30 in the morning, he heard a very loud scream come from that general direction and claimed it sounded like a woman screaming. But he Mm. couldn't be sure. Despite being a security guard, for whatever reason, he did not feel compelled to go investigate said scream. (laughs) Which, you know, do with it what you will. <laughs> like, Was he sponsored by County? I was going to say, I was like, we can't all be heroes, you know? <laughs> so, oh, my God. One thing that really, I was thinking about this today, like, when you hear a sound, like, in the woods or something, do you know much about, like, Appalachia? Mm. Mm-hmm. And, like, well, there's a lot of, everyone I know or that I've seen online who has some kind of tie to Appalachia has some kind of, like, legend or lore about, like, the forests. Like, you don't look into the woods. Like, there are, they're suggesting or insinuating there are things out there. And there is this legend. This was messing me up so bad last night. I had full body panic thinking about this, and I was crying. There is this legend about the Appalachia hay, where you're walking near the woods and a person's voice goes hey hey and 
it's just been a legend. Like it's never been like a verified thing. There was a girl who was like, I caught this on camera and it did not seem fake or fabricated or anything like that. And I, I mean, anyone can get got, but it seemed very, very real. Like you can hear in her breath, the panic. It literally sounds like a disembodied voice coming from the woods right nearby. That's so close. It's like, Hey, Oh my hey, God. I, Oh my God. It's happening right now. I'm crying. That is so much scarier to me than like, Oh, oh my God. <laughs> like, than like, a, like a murderer coming into my house. I can deal yeah. and process true crime. The thought of like something trying to pretend it's a human to lure you oh my someplace, I could throw up. It's so scary. And you wonder why I would never go to the damn woods and do any of this. Like, that's I can't disgusting. It, it's so it made me think of like Blair Witch Project immediately, yes. which I can't. I can't. So I'm going to have to send you this video after so you can watch it. It's and it sounds like it's getting closer. And she's just standing there because she's like paralyzed. Like, what, what would you even? She's in the middle of nowhere near the woods. I am all over the place, but that was on my mind, and I had to. I had to tell no, somebody. That is... It's so scary. Oh my god! But to relay it back, I can certainly understand from the security guard's point of view. If you heard a disembodied scream at three thirty in the morning, maybe, and you're making minimum, yeah, maybe I want to stay in place. Do you know what I'm thinking <laughs> in this moment? Is that maybe he was kind of, and I hate to pin it on Blair, but maybe losing the plot so much that he went and attacked someone thinking that they were coming for him Mm -hmm. and this person was like what the hell like get off me which would explain why they might have killed him out of like Mm self-defense and then they didn't take anything because they're like who the hell is this person like what is going on here that is exactly what i thought i was like that seems like the most logical to me but then there is one red herring Oh, God, maybe I should jump into the theories because, like, I have to explain one extra piece of evidence that was found at the scene, which kind of negates that idea that, like, whoever was doing this was in a rush to get out of there. But let me just see if there's anything else that I have in these notes to round it out. Let's see. Does security guard feel compelled to investigate it? So there's no additional evidence, no other witnesses. Investigators are completely lost in the mystery of what drew Blair Adams to this specific location and who he may have encountered before he met a grisly death in Tennessee. And now we can get into the theories. So one of the first and most compelling theories that gets put forward with Blair is that, of course, maybe he was somehow involved in the drug trafficking scheme that went wrong. Right. Like maybe he did know where he was going all along. This has been consistently denied, as I said, by the family, as they don't believe that he had any connections to a drug ring, nor was there any evidence like on paper or in his phone calls to suggest that or that he was working with anyone. And it also didn't seem to make sense with the clear talk screen that he was sober. And I know that people can work for as like a drug mule. or You can work in like a drug operation and not do drugs. But it, it just seemed... All of the behavior was so erratic that that just seemed like the easiest explanation. And like I said, Mm -hmm. we don't have any phone records from his phone back in Canada that he ever made a phone call to the U.S. indicating he was coming or where he was going. He just left. But the most compelling evidence to discredit this, most likely, is that all of his valuables and his money were left with the body at the time of his death. It did not seem plausible 
to explain that if he was tied up in a drug trafficking scheme, arguably with the sole purpose that is to make money, why they would not take any of his money or valuables, or more importantly, how this somehow spirals into a sexual assault that leaves a man with his pants off dead. Or that long hair found in his hand. Does any of that track? Does this feel drug-related at all? I don't feel like it tracks drug-related. I really don't. Um... You were like, I'm like, and that's that on that. You were like, baby, move right on. (laughs) I'm like, I just, I, I can't shake the feeling that I feel like he is somehow like Mission Impossible style, like creating his whole like choose your own adventure. This is his world. We're just living in it. He's like, yeah, yeah. And then maybe he thought someone was turning against him, and he attacked. That that can make sense to me. But what doesn't make sense is them leaving the money. And there is evidence in this next theory that they stuck around at that scene for quite a while to play with the body. This is really interesting. interesting. So the next theory is that this was a sex act gone wrong. It is an additional theory that gets put forward, and it is actually in part pulling from local lore in Knoxville. As people claim the construction zone where Blair was found was actually relatively close to a truck stop, which was known for quite a bit of sex work. Many have suggested, based on the nature of the body and the evidence seen, is that he was engaging in some kind of a sex act. Whether that was assault or it was consensual, we don't fully know. But it suggested he met with a sex worker and a pimp earlier in the night, which might have been what the witness saw at Cracker Barrel, the man and woman. And according to this theory, it's possible that the sex act went awry when Blair, who was already slipping on the fringes of a psychosis, has a manic episode. And it scared the sex worker who he was with, which prompted her to scream, which is what the security officer heard at 3.30. Blair starts trying to attack because he's panicking. And then the pimp steps in, who's still nearby for safety, starts attacking Blair with some kind of a metal bat or crowbar. This theory suggests that Blair was attacked using this crowbar. It struck the fatal blow to the stomach and would somehow explain that woman's like dyed black hair getting ripped out in his hand and left at the scene. They then think that this woman and this man who was with her might have panicked when she screamed because that security officer, you know, might have been on the way or like someone could have heard. So they sped away from the scene as quickly as they could. This seems like a really, really logical explanation to cover all our bases, like how he was attacked, the woman's hair, why he was in a compromising position that looked like he was having sex and possibly explaining why they got out in a hurry, like you said, and they didn't intend to rob him. You know, they just beat him where he was. But there is one additional thing at this scene, which throws all of that off. It seemed evident when police arrived that someone had rummaged through all of his belongings and his money. They had individually opened the fanny pack and they had taken the money out and methodically scattered it around him. They also found that when the shoes were removed, one of the shoes, after he was killed, was placed under his head as a pillow. It's unclear if there were other things that they did to manipulate the body after they had killed him, but what it indicated to investigators was that this scene did not look like something where someone rushed off. They couldn't find any like skid marks or tire tracks that showed that. 
all of it pointed to people who killed him and then stuck around to not take his stuff, but like play with it. Weird. Something about that screams like feminine to me. I don't know why, but like putting a shoe under his head as like a pillow and then like not taking anything, but like kind of prying and then just like scattering it. Like, I don't know. It almost seems like someone killed him and then was like, oh my God, I think I killed this person. And I was trying to like, I'm just going to put like make good on like what they just did. Yeah, like almost yeah, like, like a, not a burial, but like a weird kind of like ritualistic thing. Like, oh my God, like I don't, I can't believe I just killed this person. Let me like put something under their head. And like, I don't know. It's just, it I does t- seem I'm a little totally feminine. Totally to tracking with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can see that in any scenario where like someone who wasn't intending to kill somebody but did so out of self defense then panics because they can't go to the police. So they're like, I'm sorry. I'm so, it's like closing the eyes of the dead, kind of. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like a soldier closing someone's eyes out of respect in a weird yes. way. I can see that. I mean, the the scattering of the money doesn't quite align with that for me, but I totally get where you're going with the the shoe as the pillow. Just weird. Well, and I guess did, I did police have a way to know if any of the money had been taken. I mean, I'm sure they didn't know I how, mean, exactly how much he had on him. But They didn't know exact, I don't think, but based on how much he spent on the ticket to Germany and then receipts they could dig up from purchases for the rental cars and then the plane ticket to dc and like whatnot i think they were able to trace back they're like yeah this seems consistent with someone who probably like burned through about two grand of his six thousand because there was only four thousand dollars left yeah four grand scattered around it's like a lot of money to just like leave blowing in the wind and so the idea would be that this person like didn't take any of the money he had on him that night that's what they're thinking. They just pried through yeah. it and then like scattered it around. It also would mean that they took his car key out of his pocket and threw it on the ground and then just opened the fanny pack and just also left that. Yeah. Which is strange because it's like, well, why are they rummaging through stuff if they're not planning to take it? You know, it's like, what are they looking for? Maybe there was something on him that they wanted if he, if he actually knew these people. Maybe, or maybe, did he have, like, ID on him or anything? That's a good question. I don't know that I saw that he had ID. Let me look at that picture again. Because I'm almost curious if, like, let's say he was with a sex worker or something, and he started Mm -hmm. getting really aggressive, and this person accidentally killed him, or the pimp came over and killed him. They might be like, now, who the hell is this guy? Like, like trying oh, to figure yeah, out yeah. like rummaging through the fanny pack trying to find like id or something yeah, like, I, I if he's connect, like the last name's connected to anyone they know yeah i can yeah that yeah. would make sense i that would make sense i don't know something about it still feels off to me or maybe i can see how most of this plays out in my head but that's really all we have to go on there is Another theory here, but it's it's kind of like there's lots of holes in it, I would say, but it really is the final theory to suggest that maybe Blair's mom, Sandra, knew more than she was letting on about where he was going. So she has stayed firm on her claim to say that she had had no knowledge of you know what happened to Blair that night or where he seemed to be going or what this strange connection back to Germany is, where again, Blair's stepfather did have a construction business. While everything up until this point has suggested that 
you know, her son's case is going to remain unsolved, those who have contacted her, private investigators and sleuths to try to solve this over the decades, have been met with a lot of resistance where she says she doesn't want to open a can of worms. So some people have taken that and they've pried into it a bit and used it as this jump off point to suggest that maybe she understands what this paranoia and this connection to Germany is really about, that something went down at the construction company with Blair's stepfather, where there were some dangerous individuals who were after him. So is it possible that she has been threatened herself into silence or even worse, that she is remaining silent in the interest of protecting the stepfather who ordered her son dead? But regardless, this is a conspiracy. So there is no evidence to actually make sense of how anybody really knew where exactly Blair was going because it seemed completely illogical. And it didn't seem like he was leaving, you know, breadcrumbs or paper trails anywhere. Like he was really off the grid. And yet, somehow, he is found in Knoxville, possibly has dinner with these people. And then by 3.30 in the morning, he's viciously beaten to death with his pants down. We don't know how to explain it. So, Stu, after more than 20 years of this case... Going on, ruminating on different desks, different unsolved circles, there is still no concrete theory to make complete sense of what happened to Blair Adams that night in 1996. Many investigators who have examined the case believe that it is unsolvable unless somebody can come forward at this point with additional witness statements or a confession or new evidence that comes to light all these years later. But until that day, the story of Blair Adams is a very strange one that still haunts the people of Knoxville, Tennessee. And the mystery man and woman that he might have encountered that night at the restaurant is a very eerie relic of this story. The case remains unsolved. This one is so weird. <laughs> I know. Isn't it crazy nobody talks about this? Isn't that wild? I, yeah. I mean, this is like it just so many different unexplainable like little nuggets of information. Like there's not really any huge, like I feel like in a lot of these unsolved, like I'm almost thinking about like Timothy Pitson or like, oh, some, yeah. there's like a motive there. There's like something that feels like, like there's actually some concrete evidence of like something nefarious that was already happening. Mm -hmm. But like, we're kind of going off of like just the idea that he thought that somebody was out to get him. And like, as the, investigators like that's really all we have to go off of like there's no actual proof that anybody was out to get him no it's never found it's the only thing that like really threw it off from just being something that was in his head was obviously the witness statement of the two people but i think two things can be true kind of like what you said maybe it started as a plot where he really was losing his mind and he was kind of irrationally just like traveling and in the midst of like that chaos unfolding, it just happened to be that he crossed paths in Knoxville with a sex worker and a pimp. Maybe they approached him like single young guy. Maybe it looks like yeah. he's traveling. Maybe they saw him with a lot of cash on him. So they approached him. So maybe they take him to dinner or something. I was trying to understand how the dinner element like works into this. And then they go to that construction zone because maybe he's, they're like, you know, do you have a room somewhere, like a hotel where we can go? And he's like, no, we can't go back there. Like, he's still paranoid. 
And then like yeah, what you were saying, that's like, what I was thinking. in the middle of an act, he becomes paranoid, starts to fight her. And the pimp comes over and just starts beating him like metal crowbar to the head. Really, really vicious. A blow to the stomach so hard that your stomach ruptures. That's insane. That's so foul. I can't even imagine what that could feel like for a person. Oh, God. And I guess the other thing is it's like it's reminding me of all the other stories we've covered where like I'm thinking Maura Murray, like mm-hmm. people that have started to experience an episode and in their like escape or like sort of the quote unquote mission that he is on right now, like in that like delusions of grandeur episode, I think there really is a point where like almost like if you're on a like a axis, mm-hmm. there is some point where your luck sort of like runs out and you just like bad something bad's gonna happen to you like i don't know how to explain it like but you're gonna I think start attracting really does... the wrong kind of people yes when they yes, when they start I do they believe in prey that. on somebody who they can recognize like a little off or like yes. a little vulnerable yes. that happens yes. all the time all the time mm-hmm. god i had thought about mara murray in a minute but that really it is kind of similar in that way where like there's something that compels you when you're like on the fringes of breakdown to just run just like yes get in the car and get out yeah it's her and then um the other case that we covered where she went to malibu oh my tree like my trees richardson yeah my trees richardson it's reminding Riceless me of Pisa. that too that's yes. a similar one they all yeah they just get in their cars and just drive and i i really think it becomes a wrong place wrong time situation where yeah they become vulnerable and people that can tell that there's something off about them and can trick them into making them think they can make them feel better or what have you. And mm-hmm. then something terrible happens. Just manipulating people who are suffering from mental illness. That's most likely I yeah. think, what happened here. And Cracker Barrel is at fault. They're not, but <laughs> I had to button Honestly, this up with a little levity. Out, I know. They got out pretty, pretty uh, scot-free with the meat, the shrimp, and the salad. It could have been yeah. a hell of a lot worse. It re- I mean, they're lucky their brand wasn't tarnished from this harrowing story. They, I'm sure they would take the route and say, like, there's no evidence they actually ate here, but he ate somewhere that night. Just so weird. All of it is so, like, it's opportunistic in a way. I guess the killing wasn't really, like, premeditated. It was really, like, in this scenario, like, a self-defense thing. Just like, yeah, just went downhill so fast. And what are the chances of one hair being ripped out in a scuffle and he didn't rip out the the root? Because the root is what you need for DNA evidence. Just bizarro. Very bizarre. And then they just kind of ruminate over the body, figuring out like, what do we do? Like, oh my God, like maybe we should, maybe he can survive. Maybe he didn't die right away. We could just like prop his head up and like, maybe we should call an ambulance. Then we should leave like flee the scene they're like no he'll Mm -hmm. talk like he'll give our names or like a witness description like just debating on like what they should do i can totally see that that's really what makes me feel like that the people that did kill him that it was some sort of like self-defense thing or they knew that he was not right in the head because Mm -hmm. i think it's very bizarre if the intention is um malicious to leave everything behind like all the money and everything like i just think that if you leave everything behind you're like i don't want anything to do with that i don't know what that was like let's get the hell out of here i like the idea that you had that like 
they were so preoccupied with trying to figure out like what to do. Maybe they were going through his fanny pack looking for the ID or a phone number to call his family. And so they're so preoccupied with just trying to fix the situation that like they're just like tossing money out of the fanny pack to like clear a way to look for the ID or something. Look for a wallet. Yeah. Can totally see that. I feel really close with this one. Something's like it's like hitting a nerve for me where I'm like this feels the closest I've reviewed this story for like years but like this is the closest I've ever felt to like cracking it yeah well and especially given the fact that he had a hotel room Mm -hmm. and if there was some sex act that was about to happen he was not letting it happen back at his hotel room they were like in some odd construction site like to me it just feels like there was naturally some sort some sort of point of contention where it was like what are we doing here like who are you dude what's going on and like he might have been saying no let's just do it out here which would explain like getting halfway nude and like potentially the person being like i am not doing it out here like what are like what is going on Mm -hmm. and then him potentially i hate to paint him in this light because i feel bad for the guy because clearly he was unwell but like going you know to extremes to try to make that physical thing happen like getting and the aggressive, person yeah. being yeah and the person being like no like what the hell is going on and then that's when like you said maybe the backup of like a pimp or somebody like who was making sure it was there was definitely somebody who was yeah who was like what the them. hell that's you know? absolutely yeah. clear to me it feels like there were the two the witness of the two people makes total sense to me and then i guess that all yeah. lines up with the timing for the 3 30 a.m scream that the security guard heard but just to imagine if that security guard had followed up on that like moment, that scream, this could be a completely different case. Like walked in totally. on these two trying to like figure out what to do with the body. This, I mean, this would have never been an unsolved case in that instance. Yeah. So crazy. Oh this so is when I, I hope like something comes to light and we get someone who comes forward, an additional piece of evidence or maybe another witness statement where we can tie this back to like two people. Because even if it was you know, self-defense, they could have come forward with that. But I guess when you're working, you're working in a line of work where a lot of what you do could be illegal or you're working with difficult people, shady people. They don't want to go to the police under any circumstances. Especially in like the South and like rural areas. Like that's just, that's county, baby. (laughs) That's Mm going to be tough to explain, especially at 3.30 a.m. You're probably trespassing on some oh, sort yeah. of construction site like not none of that smells good yeah just odd too that his mom doesn't really have any interest in reopening the case but maybe it's just too painful i mean maybe she's like i put it in my past that like it's more than likely he was having a psychotic episode and then he got mixed up with the wrong people and he ended up dead yeah and also guilt like i should have been there i should have helped i should have thought to myself something dreadful is happening with him mentally that is a that's a a symptom that we see with a lot of parents in these cases that they see clear signs what look like very clear signs of like their children falling off the edge and the denial is unreal the Bryceless pizza case is crazy for how long they were like he's fine he's fine and then he disappears forever oh my god take it seriously when you see signs take action yeah so true this feels like such a slump so to end on. I feel sad. I feel bad. 
Tell me I something mean, should happy. Should we just both go to the Cracker Barrel? Oh, yes. You, you can't go to the Cracker Barrel gift shop and not feel a little something, okay? You have introduced, a you've introduced me to a couple of chains that I had never been to. You introduced me on tour to Bojangles. You introduced me to Chick-fil-A. <gasps> I had my first Chick-fil-A in front of you. That was a whole experience. Do you remember me Snapchatting? I documented the entire thing. It was, I just had never had fast food chicken like that because my bar for fast food chicken was like a snack wrap at McDonald's. So mm-hmm. to have like, Which is or, or I guess like KFC and, but KFC is known for fried chicken. So it was just so good. Oh God. It was Can so I good. tell you the funniest thing? I get a text this week from Jordan. She goes, you were the first person I texted. Have you tried the pimento cheese chicken sandwich Richard. did i okay <laughs> did i send that to you because i saw that too you said the exact same thing to me <laughs> both of you guys were like you were the first one i texted <laughs> like boots on the ground <laughs> I, like, I i saw that ad and i was i immediately like a visual just popped up of you in my head i think i'm gonna have to do it like this weekend just like make a whole experience out of it I think you have to. I haven't been to Chick-fil-A in a minute. I used to live across the street from one, which was dangerous. Um, we don't usually get along, but, you know, we make it work. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That damn chicken. It's so good. That damn chicken is so good. Their frozen, their frosted lemonade is also so good. I know. And they have a peach milkshake. I'm lethal for those. I'm I mean, you know how I feel about it. the diet lemonade. That's, that's a whole like, other That's story. a colonic. That's a- <laughs> it is friday it is friday oh my god creepers thank you so much for hanging out with us thank you for lifting my spirits too at the end of that i needed that because this was like a heavy (laughs) kind of like sad note to end on but thank you guys for listening to another case we're going to be back next week with another story from the chilling mysterious and unexplained And until then, shall we say goodbye? Goodbye and happy spooky season. Happy spooky season. This is going to be a good month. We have got, we got some stuff planned. Bye guys.